Just wanted to give you a moment to turn to Jude 5 through 7. Jude verses 5 through 7. So we have been slowly uh, been making our way through Jude's epistle. And we are in the, the fourth week, our fourth week in Jude. We looked at Jude uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, for the, to start the sermon series off. And then we looked at um, Jude verse 3. Pastor Dan led us through that as we saw the purpose of this letter, which is uh, an exhortation to uh, the church or the churches to whom Jude is writing, uh, exhorting them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And now, uh, or actually last week, we looked at verse 4, which kind of showed us the occasion for which the letter was written. Uh, which gave rise to that purpose. And now we're getting into the body of the letter, wherein Jude is trying to make his case for what he had written in verses 3 and 4. And we turn to Jude, verses 5 through 7. Now, if you're having trouble finding it, it's not that hard to find. It's the second to last book of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. It's the 65th book uh, in order Uh, in our Bible, so you can turn to Jude, and we'll actually read verses 3 through 7, just to uh, get a running start here. Uh, Before we do, just real quick, uh, the air conditioning in the Great Hall is out, but not in here. We have air conditioning in here, Uh, so if you're uh, getting a little hot, or if it seems like it's kind of loud in here and that the air conditioning is running continually, that's why. Uh, but we should be all right. If it goes out, then it'll get a little hot, but that's all right. Y'all are used to that. We made it through last June, I think, in Emerson Academy without air conditioning, and uh, we're all still alive, and uh, we're, we're, uh, we're probably better for it. So it's good. All right. Uh, if you want to stand with me for the reading of Jude, verses 3 through 7, let's listen with reverence and joy Because this is the word of our God. Jude writes this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay with their own own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again together. Father, this seems like a difficult word. Um, There's much that we could explore here. There's much that we could take rabbit trails down to to, um, satisfy, seek to satisfy our curiosities. And, And that may be appropriate at times, but we pray that this morning 
you would keep our eyes on Jesus, that you would convict us of sin, and that you would form and shape our minds and our wills to think according to and to live according to your kingdom, your word, your gospel. Magnify Jesus above all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, you're um, probably familiar with the common saying that those who do not learn history or learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. And of course, you know, this saying is probably most often used in reference to corruption in uh, maybe politics or uh, in issues with governmental or social spheres and that kind of thing. You might have heard this quote from your high school history teacher when the time came to discuss Hitler or Marx or something along those lines. And while this phrase is, is not usually quoted in reference to theological or spiritual or ethical issues, it applies just the same. And that's what Jude wants us to see this morning as we come to verses 5 through 7. The Holy Spirit through Jude is seeking to, to take us hearers into the past so that we might not be doomed to repeat it. As we've already seen so far in our series, Jude is calling churches to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's the purpose of the book, as we've already said. And last week, we saw the occasion, uh, which is that certain false teachers and false teaching was creeping into the church insidiously, and, uh, and, and so he's calling them to remain faithful in the face of this false teaching and in the, in the face of these false teachers and to contend for the faith and to guard the deposit of truth that was entrusted to them by the apostles. And now, as we turn to verses 5 through 7, we see Jude give ample warning to these false teachers and any of those who might follow their teaching by telling them about the judgment that awaits them. And he does this by giving three examples from the past. Remember that we said Jude likes triplets. He likes doing things in threes. And so here he gives three examples of past particular groups who had not believed Christ and had de departed into lives of debauchery and unbelief and were thus subjected to the judgment of the pre-incarnate Son of God. He's saying, learn from these historical examples, learn from the past so as not to repeat it. And the particular lesson that he wants us to learn from these historical examples, and, and this is our big idea this morning, is remember that God will judge and therefore we shouldn't practice or approve of sexual immorality. Remember that God will judge and therefore we shouldn't practice or approve of sexual immorality. So let's jump in. Jude starts with this uh, kind of startling example. He begins by saying, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Uh, and of course, for, for many of us, how, how, many, how many of you know that so much of the time, what we need in the Christian life is not new information, but really simple reminders of what we already know. And Jude's original audience, they already knew the examples at hand, but since they were in danger of forgetting them and falling prey to repeating history, Jude saw fit to remind them. And he reminds them, writing to them, saying that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, 
afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Uh, So this is the first example. And this is, of course, a reference to the Exodus narrative in which the pre-incarnate Son of God redeemed or saved the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And, you know, of course, it wasn't really as simple as I just put it. There was a whole bunch of stuff that took place between their coming out of Egypt and then entering into the promised land, including the destruction of those who belonged to the assembly of Israel and yet did not believe. And in particular, Jude seems to have in mind an occasion in Numbers 14, okay? Since there are two words that Jude uses here that kind of link that text with this verse. One is Numbers 14, 11, where we see that Israel did not believe God. That's what the Lord says. He says that Israel, they don't believe me. And then the other is in Numbers 14, 12, where the Lord threatens Israel with destruction. And reason being... They, Israel had sent spies into the promised land, and these spies had come back, and all of them were too afraid to enter the promised land, save Joshua and Caleb. The others were unbelieving, not believing that God might make a way for them with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. They were unbelieving, and almost the entirety of the assembly of Israel seemed to be unbelieving along with them. And so after this event, that particular generation of Israel was judged and sent to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off and so that a new generation could then enter the promised land without them. They were destroyed and judged and not permitted to enter the promised land. And this this is a particularly potent point from Jude here because remember, he's pointing out the fact that people who belonged to the Old Testament church were judged because of their unbelief. He's reminding them that no person in the church today should presume upon God's grace. If one has gone astray after false teaching, even if they're a member in good standing of their local church and seem to belong to the believing community, they ought not assume that they are good with God. Remember the history, Jude says so that you're not doomed to repeat it. And then likewise, Jude goes on to address another group in a privileged position, uh, and that of angels. And Jude points out, though, that not even angels are immune from condemnation when they depart from God's truth and standards. Jude moves on to a second example here, writing in verse 6. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So, we're going to address this, trying to not get too far into the weeds here, but there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Uh, and if you want to entertain yourself for a few hours, you should study this. But here's, here's, there's some differing interpretations of this text. Okay, So, one interpretation which is probably not right, but is like nice and clean and neat, is that this text is talking about the fall of Satan and his demonic cohorts. That the angels here depart, that departed from their position of authority, just a reference to Satan and demons, who are fallen angels, 
And their rebellion against God and being cast out of God's favor. You can read about this very thing in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. And in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 18. And while that is nice and neat, I don't think it actually does justice to the text. And here's why. If you look on in verse 7, Jude seems to be saying that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah participated in sexual immorality similar to the angels that he's referenced here in verse 6. He says that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, likewise to the angels, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That particular word, likewise, indicates that the angels in question here in verse 6 are a particular group of fallen angels who committed acts of sexual immorality. And we find such an event briefly mentioned and very oddly in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It's very interesting. There, Moses writes that as humanity multiplied in the earth, the sons of God, that's a reference to angels, the sons of God, these angels, found that the daughters of men, that's human women, were attractive. And so apparently these angels left their proper dwelling as spiritual beings, left the sort of heavenly or invisible realm as angels, and they took on uh, human flesh, and they had sexual intercourse with women. And they had children, the Nephilim, which Genesis 6-4 says, particularly because they wanted to corrupt, to further corrupt the human race and interrupt the line of the promised Messiah. And so they crossed divinely appointed boundaries to engage in sexual immorality. And because of this, Jude says, Jesus has judged them and they are incarcerated in a hellish holding place awaiting the judgment of the great day when Christ returns. And there's actually a clever little wordplay here. You might not be able to see it in your English translation depending on which translation you have. But literally Jude says, the angels who did not keep their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness. Literally, he's saying because they did not keep their God-given position, Jesus has kept them in chains. Again, like Israel in verse 5, they were in a privileged position, but they departed from God's truth and standards. And because of this, Jesus eternally judged and condemned them. Learn from history so as not to repeat it. And then the third and last example that Jude gives is that of this, everyone knows about this, the famous account of Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes on to write in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Of course, Genesis 18 and 19 record this This famous story, those two cities along with the surrounding cities were destroyed by sulfur and fire because of their sin, Genesis 19.24 tells us. And of course, their wickedness went beyond that of blatant sexual immorality. Uh, Ezekiel 16.49 tells us that some of Sodom's sins included pride, excess food, prosperous ease, and not aiding the poor and needy. And these are real sins that we ought to remember Sodom and and Gomorrah being judged for. However, that's not the entirety of their sins, no matter how much people in the world might want to make you believe that. What we find here in Jude 7 and in other places throughout the scriptures is that sexual, uh, sexual immorality 
and more particularly, homosexuality is indeed one of the many sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for. Jude says that they indulged in sexual immorality. And this Greek word here is not, it's a little more extreme than that. It's not the normal Greek word translated as sexual immorality. That word is porneia. It's a word that that we get the word porn from. Uh, But that's not actually the word that Jude uses here. He uses a a, a word that kind of emphasizes it and and seems to to communicate some of the more extreme forms of sexual immorality. He says, ek pornue, which gives the impression of a more severe form of sexual immorality. And included in these forms, these more extreme forms of sexual immorality was, the ESV says, pursuing unnatural desire. Now, uh, I don't think that that's not the most literal translation. It's just not. It's a fact. And I don't actually think it's the most helpful translation either of that phrase. It very literally says that they went after other flesh or that they went after strange flesh. Okay? They went after strange flesh or unnatural flesh. It's speaking of committing sexual acts that are not in accordance with nature. And more specifically, it's referring to the act of homosexuality. It's saying that homosexuality, uh, homosexual acts and behavior are sexual acts and behavior that are not in accordance with nature, or not in accordance with the way that God has designed us as humanity to be and to live. It's a departure from God's design. It crosses divinely appointed boundaries, similarly to the angels in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Divinely appointed boundaries are crossed. Boundaries that God has set in place. Jude refers to homosexuality as that. And because of that, he says, Sodom and Gomorrah were subjected to Jesus' eternal judgment and condemnation. And having been judged, Jude says, they stand as an example for us of God's judgment against those who depart from his truth and his standards. He's saying, look at the past so as not to repeat it. Judgment day is coming. We've seen uh, four shadows of it in these events. Judgment day is coming. You will stand before Christ and give an account. Therefore, in the face of these false teachers with their sexual immorality and their teachings on sexuality, do not compromise, but instead contend. Now, I want to spend a few more moments here on the subject of sexuality, and particularly homosexuality, partly because the timing in which we, we come to this text, I mean, it, you, you know it's Pride Month. I mean, you, you're confronted with this everywhere. Every restaurant you go to, uh, commercials from major uh, businesses, we even see it downtown in our, in our courthouse uh, downtown. It's, it's all over the place. You're continually being confronted with this. It's continually in front of our eyes, so we need to address it. Moreover, I, it's not just an issue of this month, really. I mean, we've talked about the issue of deconstruction recently and deconversion recently. It's a very, like, kind of hip and common uh, and trendy thing right now for believers, professing believers, uh, sometimes well-known professing believers to deconstruct the faith and deconvert and to do so very publicly with very powerful and emotionally uh, manipulating deconstruction or deconversion stories and with 
often like perfectly curated photos to, to go along with them so that they can post it on their social media. And one of the main issues that is coming up again and again and again in these stories are issues of sexuality and belief that the beliefs that the church, that what the church has taught on these matters for the last 2,000 years are not only outdated but immoral and damaging. So we need to address this. But what's most important here is that the scriptures talk about this issue. And Jude here is talking about this issue. And I want to do my best to equip you to think biblically about these issues in this cultural moment. So we need to address this. And please understand, I'm not going to be able to answer every question you might have or, or, or uh, you know, talk about every scenario that you might face in this particular cultural moment. But I want to show you, very basically here, that the Bible does indeed teach that homosexuality is a departure from God's design for us, that it is sin, and that we therefore ought not practice it or approve of those who do. And I really want to base this, as always, I want to base this on the teaching and authority of the Bible, because here's a big assumption that the world has about Christians on this issue. It's often thought that the reason we profess that practicing homosexuality is a sin is simply because we find it distasteful, because we don't like it, or because we're homophobic. Or uh, I heard Aziz Ansari say, just very blatantly one time, the reason you Christians disapprove of homosexuality is because you don't like gay people. You just find them distasteful. That was his accusation. And you know, his uh, philosopher uh, Alistair McIntyre, in his wonderful book, After Virtue, who argued rather convincingly that the, the sort of predominant ethical theory that governs Western people's ethical decision-making today is, that, is something called emotivism. Okay, emotivism is simply a way of doing ethics that, that boils de- everything down to personal preferences and the way that an individual feels about any given subject. In other words, ethical beliefs and judgments are nothing more than someone expressing how they feel about a particular thing. And largely, that's the way our culture works today. Okay, ethical judgments and statements are made by individuals most often just based on however they feel about a particular thing. And so I think it's with that, it's often assumed that that's what we're doing as Christians. Okay, but we need to be very clear here. While the world may make ethical judgments based on their personal preferences and tastes, we don't. The reason that we do or at least ought to believe that homosexual lifestyles and behaviors are sinful is because Scripture does indeed teach that they are. But to be very clear that what governs our beliefs as humanity and beliefs about humanity and about sexuality and about ethics as Christians is not just the way that we feel about a particular thing or about a particular group of people. What governs our beliefs about such matters is the Bible, and the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin, regardless of how we feel about it. And this point is often challenged, actually, the the fact that the Bible teaches this, this this point is often challenged by those in and sometimes outside of the church that perhaps the scriptures don't actually teach that homosexuality is a sin, but that is just more of a, a a church tradition. That couldn't be more inaccurate course, if you were to go to Leviticus 18, uh, you would find there a chapter which describes at length a, a list of unlawful sexual practices. And in that list, you would find verse 22, which says, 
You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And that's very clear. But then many people would hear that and they say, well, you can't use that verse. That's in Leviticus. It's the same book that tells you to not uh, wear clothes made of differing materials or to toss around the pigskin with your friends. And y'all do that. So, uh, okay, well, first of all, we, we need to adjust, like, those are bad hermeneutics. But even with that, let's go to the New Testament. We've already seen what Jude has to say here, so we won't even look at Jude necessarily, but let's look at other New Testament writers. Let's look at Paul. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. He says that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then, of course, there's also those who would say, well, that word translated as homosexuality is misleading. It's not talking about two consensual adults who love one another and care for one another. Uh, That's talking about sex slavery and pedophilia, okay? That's not what it says. He, He doesn't say pedophilia or sex slavery. He just says those who practice homosexuality. And the particular word here includes those who are both active and passive in those acts. But okay, even still, even if, even if we want to see uh, Paul not just talk about the word itself, but actually if we want to see Paul describe the behavior, the thing itself, we need to go nowhere else other than Romans 1, 20, 26 through 27. So leading up to this, Paul is talking about the sin and idolatry of Gentile nations, and he says that their sin and their idolatry led to God handing them over to their sinful passions, and in these sinful passions, Paul says, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error." Notice, this is not pedophilia or sex slavery. This is men being filled with passion and lust for one another and women being filled with passion and lust for one another and engaging in what is plain to see consensual sexual acts. But then, both people in and outside of the church have said, yeah, Leviticus and you know Jude and Paul. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? He, he never addressed the issue. Isn't he the one you follow? You don't follow Paul or Jude or Moses. You follow Jesus, and he never said a thing about it. First, let me just say, that's not how we read the Bible. Okay, we, we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture comes to us from God, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and therefore all Scripture is the authoritative word of Jesus Christ, not just what we find in the Gospels. But even with that, Jesus does address the issue. Maybe not directly, but indirectly he addresses the issue. And he does so by taking us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to look at Matthew 19, 4 through 6, there Jesus has been asked a question about divorce. And particularly if a man can divorce his wife for any reason. And this is how he responds. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, is he indirectly, or rather, is he directly addressing the issue in that he's answering a question particularly about homosexuality? No, he's not doing that. But he's indirectly addressing the issue in his answer on the subject of divorce. And again, notice how he does that by taking us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 to show us how in the beginning, God designed marriage and sexuality to work, particularly it's meant to work between a male and a female, a man and a woman. In Genesis 1 and 2, you'll notice that everything seems to to come in couples and to have this these couples have direct complementarity. Each of them have their complementary counterpart, which fits perfectly and beautifully and with gorgeous complementarity. There's light and there's darkness. There's heaven and earth. There's land and sea. There's morning and evening. There's sun and moon. There's fish and birds. There's plants and animals. And there's male and female who fit together in a way that enables them to become one in this marital union and in sexuality in marriage. And this is, this is just naturally observable, isn't it? Men and women fit together in a way that is naturally observable, and that's why the majority of the world today and the majority of the world throughout history, non-Christians even, have said that heterosexual relations are natural and homosexual relations are unnatural. One fits together and usually results in the procreation and furthering of the human race and the other doesn't fit together and cannot result in procreation because it's not natural. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore... Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is what Scripture teaches, and it does so very clearly. This is why we believe that homosexuality is is, is a departure from God's design. This is why we believe that it crosses boundaries that God has put in place. This is why we believe it to be sin. Because the scriptures teach that it is, and the scriptures are our final authority as followers of Jesus. These are not merely human documents here. These are not merely human documents. These, are, these words are God-breathed, breathed by the Holy Spirit. We don't have the right or the ability to toy or to fudge with what God has said. He is the one who created and designed us. He is the one who has final say over all things, including that of sexuality. Now, let me just give two caveats to this. First, I want us to recognize we're addressing the issue of homosexuality because Jude is particularly talking about this issue. But I want us to recognize and remember that the dangers here are not just on the left for us today. There are real and formidable and perhaps maybe even more insidious dangers on the right. I, I know that the, the dangers of, uh, regarding sexuality that are on the left are often more noticeable and recognizable, and they are very real, and that's why I want to address this today. However, there are dangers on the right too. 
We've seen those on the right, even those within evangelicalism, practicing sexual immorality, sometimes secretly, or even committing sexual abuse and hiding it and covering it up. I mean, we can't ignore situations like with Ravi Zacharias. We can't ignore situations like with with what's gone on in, in the Southern Baptist Convention for the last several decades where sexual abuse and other forms of crossing divinely appointed boundaries has gone sometimes tolerated and covered up for years and often tolerated and covered up in the name of not hurting the witness of the church or protecting a a fruitful ministry that stinks to high heaven of hypocrisy. But not only that, we also ought to remember the the evangelical enthusiasm for a presidential candidate who not only committed but blatantly bragged about sexual immorality and abuse. That stinks to high heaven of hypocrisy. Ought to never approve or gloss over sexual immorality or abuse in any form just because theologically or politically a person lines up with us on paper. We ought never tolerate it just because someone has a seemingly fruitful ministry or because it's politically expedient. Jude's teaching condemns that too. So don't be deceived into thinking that these kinds of dangers are only present on the left. They're present on the right too. And then my other caveat is for those of you who struggle with same-sex attraction, but are seeking to faithfully follow Jesus. We We are thankful for you. We want you here. We're thankful that you're here. And I want you to see here that the scriptures nowhere condemn you for struggling with same-sex attraction. They condemn homosexual practices and behaviors and lifestyles. You see that that emphasis here. They, They also condemn homosexual lust, similar to the way that they condemn heterosexual lust. But notice that the theme here that we find in in the Bible is, in the verses that we've looked at, is that of practicing homosexuality. And so part of your calling and burden in in being a disciple of Jesus in this life is to not act according to those attractions. We all have desires and attractions that we're not to act upon as believers of Jesus Christ, and this is one of them for you. And I know that the world will say that that is damaging and harmful for me to say that. But you know what's actually damaging and harmful is when the world tells you that you are the sum of your sexual desires. That, that, that your identity is wrapped up in your sexual desires or romantic attractions. And what I've said here could only be interpreted as abusive and with a worldview, if you have a worldview wherein that's the case. But I want you to see here, friend, that you are not your sexual attractions or desires. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, your deepest identity is that of being in Christ and being a beloved son or daughter of God in him. That's your identity. Your identity is based on something far more secure than passing feelings and urges. And because of that, you can be far more secure and far more resilient than if you were basing your identity on your attractions or physical urges. Those are passing. Those are fading. Christ and his kingdom are eternal and imperishable. Base your life and identity on him. 
Now, a few points of application before we close. First, if we are going to be faithful in the face of challenges in this cultural moment, particularly when they involve issues of sexual immorality and homosexuality, then we must be resolute in our belief the authority of the Bible. Now, undoubtedly, the West in general, and the U.S. in particular, have kind of entered uh, a new era where it relates to Christianity quite differently than it has in the past. In the past, you might have been able to to assume that the average Westerner, the average American, had had, had, uh, something of a friendlier disposition toward Christianity. And on the whole, maybe society viewed it neutrally, if not favorably. Oh, those days are gone. Those days are gone, and as time goes on, you might very well face an increase in difficulty and opposition for holding to biblical convictions, holding to certain biblical truths regarding things like sexuality and other similarly uh, unpopular biblical truths, some of which we're going to try to address in this series, very well might make your life difficult at times. And with that, you will likely face temptation to let go of or to undermine some particular scriptural teachings to just make your life a little bit easier. I saw this when I lived in Columbus several years ago. There's a young woman there who, uh, that was a member of our church there. She operated a, a wedding videography business, and um, because of her biblical conviction, she would not shoot for ceremonies for same-sex couples. And for years, she turned down opportunities without any problem, but in, in 2015, she turned down an offer to shoot a video for a lesbian couple's ceremony and then suffered an onslaught of attacks. She would get calls with people screaming at her, some calls with death threats. They contacted the the Better Business Bureau. They removed her from their town's Chamber of Commerce membership. Uh, People who had never met or used her services left scathing reviews on Google and Facebook. And eventually, due to all of this, she lost her business and she had to shut down. And honestly, it, it would have been easier for her to just compromise her biblical convictions and do what the world wanted her to do. It would have been just so much easier to compromise. And if you're not rock solid on the authority and truthfulness of the Bible, you will. I'm not saying that you'll face a situation exactly like her, although you might, but these kinds of things are going to be increasingly common. And if you're not rock solid on the scriptures being true and authoritative, you'll compromise instead of contend. Next, along with that, we must slay the idol of approval. We must slay the idol of approval. It might be one of the bigger temptations for us in our generation to compromise on biblical truth and standards because we want to have the love and approval of the world. And it's not just the world in general. Like, it's particular people. It's family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers, particular people that we know and love and that we want to have relationships with. When faced with the temptation to be bold in truth or buckle under pressure, one of the major considerations for many of us is what are they going to think of me? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? Are they going to reject me? And and we can just be really frank for a moment and say it hurts people. It hurts us when people reject us. It hurts. It hurts, and that's fine, and that's normal, and that's healthy to experience that as painful. It is painful. We're not robots. 
When people reject us, it hurts, and it's okay to be hurt by that. But what's not okay is to let people's acceptance or rejection control our lives and to let that be more important to us than God and what he said in his word. Don't be like the men that John writes about in John 12, 43, when he says that they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Be more concerned about what pleases God. Be more in awe and reverence of God than you are of people. Be more concerned about the glory that comes from God than the glory that comes from man. For the glory that comes from man is quickly fading and passing away, but the glory that comes from God is forever. Slay the idol of approval. Third, be compassionate even while contending. My friends, part of what we need to realize is that when we look at our LGBTQ plus neighbors and those who identify as such, or neighbors who are otherwise engage, engaging in uh, sexual immorality and sexual, sexually immoral behavior, we're not looking at people who are unlike us. We are looking at people, we are looking in a mirror. We are looking at our fellow image bearers who are in need of Christ's redemption, same as us. So even while we don't approve of sexual immorality, we also approach others always with compassionate hearts that reflect the heart of Christ. We want to reflect the heart of Christ, who said, who said that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We want to reflect the heart of Christ who came not to condemn the world, but to save the world by giving himself on the cross for our sins, including sins of sexual immorality and homosexuality. And so with that, our sexually immoral and LGBTQ plus neighbors are not our enemies. And even if they were our enemies, we know how we're supposed to treat our enemies. We're supposed to do good for them and pray for them, just like Jesus, even while contending for the truths and standards of God's word. Called to be compassionate even while contending. And lastly, protect the gospel to pass it on. Here's the thing, friends. Since the, the sexual revolution began in 1960s, our nation has reaped the whirlwind. One scholar points out that from 1960 to the turn of the century, America has doubled its divorce rate, tripled its teen suicide rate, quadrupled its violent crime rate, quintupled its prison population, sextupled its, its out-of-wedlock births, and septupled the rate of cohabitation without marriage, which has been established as a significant predictor of divorce. That's a whole lot of carnage coming from the sexual revolution. And while I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, it seems based on these trends that we can safely assume that the avalanche is going to continue to gain momentum here and the carnage is going to continue to accumulate and grow. And that just makes sense. When you consider that lifestyles of sexual immorality and homosexuality are outside of God's good design for us. You can only live outside of the way you were designed for so long before you start to fracture and atomize and break. And we're beginning to see that. We've been seeing that. We'll continue to see that more and more. And you know, I, I once heard Russell Moore say that sometime down the road, be it years, be it decades, there's going to be a 
slew of refugees coming from the sexual revolution, coming to the church of Jesus Christ, looking for peace, looking for hope, looking for redemption, looking for forgiveness, and looking for wholeness. Because they looked for it in this sexual revolution, and all they found is brokenness. And part of my desire for for Veritas is that if and when that day comes, whenever it is, that we will have a gospel to give them. But in order for us to have a gospel to give them, we need to contend, we need to preserve, we need to protect this gospel that we have been entrusted with by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God because it's only in this gospel that we find redemption and healing and forgiveness and wholeness. It's only in this gospel that refugees of the sexual revolution can find enduring hope and peace in life. You know, I read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 earlier, which Paul lists out the sexually immoral and idolaters and adulterers and those who practice homosexuality. And he goes on in verse 10 to continue to list thieves and greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And he says that such people will not inherit the kingdom of God, but... Verse 11 is a hope-filled verse. It says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you, Corinthians. Such were some of you, Veritasers. But, Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, there is hope for the broken, for the bruised, for the bleeding, for the sinful, for the wicked. My friends, our gospel is not a reward for good people. It is the good news of forgiveness and redemption for bad and broken people like you and like me and like every human being that has ever walked the face of this planet. It's a gospel in which Christ took the judgment that we deserve because of our sins. It's a a gospel of salvation much better than delivery from Egypt. This gospel is a gospel that offers salvation from sin and guilt itself, offering us forgiveness and everlasting life. And that gospel is worth preserving and protecting and contending for because it's our only hope. And so we will contend for this gospel. We will protect it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, that it shows us what you have called us to, so that we might live according to your word and find in Christ true human flourishing. Help us to remember that this is only found in Christ and only found in his gospel and to therefore contend for this gospel, contend for this faith, contend for this common salvation continually so that we might offer it to a world in need. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.